0: Welcome to the Why It Works podcast. I'm Joe Kwan, your host. Together, we'll pull back the curtain to reveal the hidden principles behind why things work. Things work for a reason. Let's find out why. Audiobooks are my kryptonite, and today's podcast is brought to you by Audible, the Rolls-Royce of audiobooks. Get a free audiobook and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash works. Here with us today is Mike Kennedy, Learning and Development Leader for the MBA. Mike has overseen a dramatic expansion of the league's professional development catalog and founded the MBA Business Academy to support the growth of the league's high-potential population. His team was awarded gold in Brandon Hall's 2016 Excellence Awards for Best Advance in Leadership Development. We speak to Mike from his home in New Jersey. Welcome, Mike, to the Why It Works podcast, and thank you for being here.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Joe. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited.
0: Great. So, I met you at KPMG right before you moved to what sounded like a dream job for you at the NBA. Yeah. What was the transition from Big Four Accounting to a professional sports
1: organization like? I probably underestimated what that transition was going to, to, to be like, uh just because I was, as you said, going to, to kind of a dream job in, in some ways. Uh and because I had moved between industries. Uh I've never you know, of, of the five or six jobs that i've had for any duration they've they've been in very different industries so i was prepared for a big change but what i was not quite prepared for was how let's say retrograde the sports industry was relatively speaking in in hr and kind of people and culture management at the at the time uh, so it was it was a little bit bumpy uh, thankfully within just a couple of years our new commissioner and this is not to say anything negative about uh, Commissioner Stern, who uh, who, Adam's predecessor, but Adam Silver, uh, as commissioner and a very uh, new, you know, new wave kind of guy, more uh, very contemporary thinker, really decided that we should be a different kind of organization than than what sports was in the past. So two years later, the transition became really easy. It was just a little tough uh, on the way there. (laughs) Great.
0: Let's get to know you a little bit better. Tell us what you do, but Break it down as if you were explaining it to a five-year-old.
1: Sure thing. I have, I guess uh, I would say to a five-year-old, I have kind of three jobs <laughs> and that's, that's evolved. But the, the first job is I run a, a team that is a little like a, a school inside our company. So my, my team, it's called the Learning and Development Team. And we are responsible for developing and delivering a whole range of of classes, basically, helping people to learn skills and develop knowledge that are going to make them better able to do their jobs. It's not technical. I don't teach how to do computers or anything uh, really, you know, I don't teach marketers how to market, but we teach how to communicate well, how to manage your time, how to lead people. So that's uh, that's one big part of my job and was really what I was hired to do originally. And uh, since then, I've also started doing more work uh, as a consultant. So going back to our time at KPMG, uh, where I help NBA teams and WNBA and Gatorade League and 2K teams think about how they might do the same kind of work that that I do at the NBA. And then my third job is to help certain departments at the league think about the way they use their people and whether they have them in the best positions. uh, We do things called succession planning and and think about whether we have the right people preparing in the right way to be in bigger jobs down the road or whether there are really talented people that we need to give better opportunities to. So things along those lines. And every day is different. So it's really fun to be me sometimes.
0: So you sound like you have a lot of downtime.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm really just uh, sitting around trying to figure out what to do with myself quite a lot.
0: (laughs) Very good. Very good. I'm so happy to have you here today to talk about the topic of learning. And let me tell you why. The public speaking course uh, you taught at KPMG, which I attended, really changed everything for me. It really opened my eyes to what public speaking really was about and what it could be. The funny thing is, and I know I mentioned this to you over the phone before, I didn't really leave your class as a particularly better public speaker, but what it really did do for me was it laid a foundation for me to have a better understanding, which I could then use as a springboard to learn more and develop more my public speaking and start that learning journey uh, with the right foundation. So now when I watch a great public speaker, I view them and I watch things totally differently. And I'm really excited to have you here today to share some of your insights on learning with our audience.
1: Uh, th- that's awesome, Joe. And, I- and I'll tell you what, I can sort of uh, repay that, uh, that compliment in some ways, because hearing you talk about that, uh, including in your-, your first episode, I believe, just dovetailed really perfectly with with some of what I've been doing in, in the past few years because uh, the learning m- my field, which again, I'm the luckiest guy in the world in many ways. I've been doing this kind of work for 20, almost, gosh, 25 years, which gives me some pause. But I, 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 you know, I love many things about it. But one of the things that I, that's continued to keep me motivated and excited is that we, we've only just in the past few years had really good resources to understand some of the ways in which learning is is really effective, and and we really help people be successful. And what you said happens to dovetail with something that that even I have have only come to really appreciate in the last couple of years, which is that we've overestimated the extent to which it's important to have people leaving the room able to do something better. And really, it was never realistic to think that was going to be the case, but. Helping people to be better prepared and better able to reflect on those skills—that's really where we can add value. And so, so when I heard you say that uh, I, again, it was—it was just—it was just, it was just a, a wonderful moment for me because that's what I've really tried to focus my team and even my colleagues on more. Is saying there's not necessarily a plausible path in a three-hour or two-day class to getting people able to behave differently. But what you can do is get them to think about how I can be prepared to do this thing differently. And when I've been in a situation, how can I think about my performance and whether I was successful and how I could be more successful and to observe more and be thoughtful about how to, how to bring those observations into, into your learning. So it just, it couldn't have been a more perfect formulation of a lot of what I was trying to articulate uh, at that point. So thank you. Oh, awesome, Mike. Thank you.
0: Now, I know your current role, as you described it before, covers, you know, way more than just public speaking or limited topics or technical topics of learning. In your experience, and you know, you've probably trained, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people, what are some of the areas you feel that most people, regardless of their role or title, can really benefit from improving in the area of learning?
1: If there's, if there's anything, it's, it, it's leadership and, and, and the, the immediate like response to that or thought is but but not everyone's a leader and i would i would challenge that premise i would say that, that everyone has the capacity to lead even if it's just leadership you know if it's if it's self leadership and and that can translate into professionalism how you show up how you pursue motivation how you ask your manager to manage you And uh, certainly then continuing over the course of a career where whether it's as a role model or whether it's as an identified people manager, whatever path you're on as you become more experienced and, and more respected there are always opportunities to pursue and to demonstrate leadership and what i've really come to appreciate over time as my career has unfolded i've i've spent more and more time on on leadership as the you know the biggest area of practice for me within learning and it's it's been a journey of discovery that the the stuff of good leadership is the stuff of of being a good professional number 1 but in many ways and i don't mean to get too uh, sort of zen here but but a lot of it is, is the journey to, to living a good life and being a, a good person. So much of that now we see is, is really part of what being a, a great leader is. And so I, I you know, hope people really embrace the idea that you're always leading in some way. And it's a question of how you, how you show up in, in doing that uh, can be really powerful. Great.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Now, learning is serious business, but it doesn't have to be without humor.
2: If you're gonna to learn to be true dodgeballers, then you've got to learn the five D's of dodgeball. Dodge, duck, dip, dive, and dodge. If you master the five D's, no amount of balls on earth can hit you. Queer go ahead.
3: Me or? Yeah, um, should we like learn by dodging
2: balls that are thrown at us, or? That's what this sack of wrenches is for. You can dodge a wrench. You can dodge a ball. What? (laughs) Uh. Any other questions? Oh, my God! Yeah, uh, Patches. Are you sure that this is completely necessary? Uh. Necessary? Is it necessary for me to drink my own urine? Probably not. No, but I do it anyway because it's sterile and I like the taste. OK. And if you're going to lead this squad to the floor, you've got to learn to do the dance in the dark. Yeah, put that on. All right, ladies, buckle up. It's showtime. There hey. you go. On the time.
0: <laughs> so, Mike, what can we learn from this?
1: First off, Joe, uh, it's very unfair of you to have recorded that class that I did with you without telling me.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that camera came in handy.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I love that, and um, that's that's. Uh, First off, my wife, who's who's going to end up coming up a couple of times, but uh, but she'll she'll be uh, she'll be much more eager to listen to this uh, to this episode, knowing that that clip is in there. I, I, the power of incentive. <laughs> let's let's say that's what jumps out at me. And I, I mentioned this uh, a few minutes ago that that really our understanding of learning has has evolved so quickly, and so much of it was really done based on on theory that wasn't necessarily substantiated by by evidence because just how are you going to gather that evidence right but we've we've gotten much better in that regard and it sounds like a a little bit of a disconnect from such a funny clip to be talking about such heavy things right but the reality is our my industry again even in the past um, i would say from around from around 2000 to around 2010 there was a big push to become more rigorous in our practices and and so instructional design is is what we refer to as as the 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 framework that we use to to develop learning uh, learning courses and uh, experiences and it was always sort of Bible and verse that that's driven by business objectives. You know, what is the business trying to achieve? And then you go forth and you develop everything with that as the starting point. And this wasn't my discovery, uh, although it, it connected with me, but the, the corporate executive board wrote, wrote a paper on this fairly recently. Um, learner, if you can, you can have great business objectives at the core of what you're teaching, but... Why does that make a person want to learn? Because incentive is always part of learning. Who has ever learned anything simply because they were exposed to it and they didn't, you know, oh yeah, I didn't need to learn. I guess there are some, you know, savants who just sit next to someone playing the piano and can all of a sudden play the piano. But for m- most of us mere mortals, there has to be some reason for us to learn. And, and so I've, I've even changed my own process of assessing learning needs to start with, what's in it for the people because that down the line we had that idea of what's in it for the learner but flipping that and saying that's the starting point because there's no point in even thinking about what the business gets out of it or what the what the end result's going to be unless you've thought about whether the person is going to want to learn and so we know that now that the desire to learn, uh, what we call learner values, that's, that's the absolute starting point. And, and I hope uh, many of my colleagues come around to, to to putting that really closer to the front end of their thought process, because I've had a couple of recent experiences where it was very clear that, that uh, work that I was doing, had I done it even two years or three years ago before I was more thoughtful about this, would have, would have been unsuccessful. And I'm on a much better track now. So. Starts with uh, with incentive, and granted, I don't know that a wrench to the face is <laughs> <expensive>, that, <laughs> that I want to be, uh, you know, uh, but, but thinking about incentive at least as a starting point, whatever it is. Maybe something a little more positive, but, but getting on that track is a good start.
0: Well, what I love what you're saying about here, Mike, is I'm picturing two different classrooms, right? Mm-hmm. So there's one where I see all the students leaning forward, they're like, oh my God, this is going to make me rich, or yes. oh my gosh, I'm going to get the husband or wife, of, whatever it is, whatever their incentive, they've come to that class and right. it's already naturally aligned to what yes. they want as human beings. And I'm thinking of another classroom. Not to say that it's any less important, but it's totally disconnected. No one has made the connection for them, even if it exists, and they're just kind of on their iPhones or their whatever, and they're thinking, uh, oh, maybe they'll take a note here. They want to sit towards the back so they can make an exit if they need to. Yes. And the company's spending the same amount of money on both of those trainings, right? The instructors cost the for same sure. amount the materials. So which one would you rather have, the engaged you know, employees or the you know, out-of-touch employees?
1: as a subset of that, what CEB identified is career applicability is, is a real, is a way to tap into that learner value piece, especially in the corporate learning world. And for sure, I've, I've been without naming names, uh, you know, I've been <laughs> in environments where the, the incentive was, well, you get points uh, or, or on your licensure, right? You get credit that enables you to keep your, your licensure status by being here, but you don't actually have to interact or pay attention in any way. And when you tell people that, guess what? They don't interact. Not that I would tell people that, but that was always the, the natural inclination. With CEB, you know, as a subset identified of that learner value piece is is career applicability. And if that's your point of entry for people, it's not it's not going to be effective when you tell them, uh, again, this is to maintain your license status or this is to increase shareholder value or something along those lines. People, people will zone out, but when you tell them, here's how this is going to make your life easier, here's how you're going to, down the road, be able to, uh, to manage your career better or apply skills in, in different environments and be more impressive to prospective employers, clients, whatever the case might be, that's when, that's when people are going to have a sense of commitment for whatever you're bringing to the table.
0: What I think is a subtext in what you're saying here is this approach puts more of the responsibility on the trainer or the teacher or the learner to make that connection. It's not this attitude, well, if the employee or the student doesn't understand why, then they're dumb, right? It it really puts the onus uh, as you as a responsible teacher who wants to teach people to say, hey, how do I get them to the spot where they're going to get the most out of what we're going to talk about today?
1: Very much so, and 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 in fact, Joe, one of the one of the things that um, that I'm that all of us that that do this kind of work are wrestling with a little bit is because this is a, this is a newer recognition. You know, it's not enough. Once upon a time, and I, so even talking about things like like CPE credits as as a motivator, and knowing that people won't won't be serious then. But the the reality is, even being told that HR wants you to take a course, I I I'm I'm lucky in that. I have a tolerant enough uh, environment around me that when I say things like I will not use the word mandatory, I, there's just, there's no such thing in my world as mandatory training. And it's because uh, first off, I don't have to deal with compliance training and that's a thing. That's fine. Some, that's something that that we need, but what I'm, what I'm, the the kind of skills that I'm, that I'm teaching are those where when you say this is a, this is a mandatory thing and that's coming from HR or it's coming from your computer because it's in your learning plan and it says this is required. I know that right off the bat, I'm pushing a rock uphill. And especially when we get into things like leadership, the more we get business leaders and managers out in front and saying not, I need you to go take this course, either because it's on your plan or because HR said it, but saying, I want you to take this because I want you to learn. I want you to grow. I want you to perform at this level. I want to be able to, to support you in your career growth. That's, and we've known for a while that that was a game changer, but but it's it's just become so much more obvious, even how that plays out in the classroom. That it's uh, it's something that we all, in my field, I think, have to get better at at pushing. A, a, a young um, protege of mine, who's with a, with a different company now, was trying to to launch a. A, a management training program, and could not uh, could not convince his leadership to just uh, to be the ones that announced it and said, "Hey, we really want you guys to take this." They insisted that his department or the HR department say, "Hey, we're we're launching this, and it's really important that you come." And it's it's a subtle thing, but I said, uh, "Dude, you got You got to work on that because <laughs> over time, you know, you're going to be in a much better place when it's not because HR said so. Because it just it does impact the the learning experience that people have for better or for worse. Well, for worse, but whether we like like it or not I guess is a better way to put that great
0: now I must admit I'm a bit of a traditionalist when it comes to learning in the martial arts area I, I train in Aikido but I acknowledge it can be sort of a painful frustrating road as our next learner shows yeah
2: show me sand floor me. sand floor Sand floor. big sucker, sand floor, sand floor. Yes. now show me wax on, wax off. Hey. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off, wax on, wax on. hey, wax on, hat, wax off, at. Concentrate, look at my eye hand thumb inside. Wax on, hat. Axof, off, hat. Wax hat. Wax off, hat. Wax on. off. Show me, paint Up, down. Up, down. Up, down. Other side, look-eye, always look-eye. Show me, paint the house, side-side. luck list, side-side, side-side. Yes. show me, wax on, wax off. Catch! 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 Show me, paint the fence. Catch! Yes! 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 Show me side to side. Yes! 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 Show me sand off floor. Yes! yes, yes. yes.
0: Tell us what you see, Mike. No mercy.
1: <laughs> well, actually, what I what I love about that is that it draws on some traditions that more, pardon the repetition of the word, but that more traditional, at least in the in the corporate sense, um, trainers, instructors that we sort of forgot forgot about it for a long time, but but we've known about this for. Some of the earliest research or theory that, that ever went into to learning and cognition, and it dates back to the late 1800s, um, identified that some of the most powerful ways of learning were, were based on um, things called spaced repetition and retrieval practice. You, you heard the term learning curve. Uh, most people have. But that actually is a little bit of a, a twist on what was originally the, for, the forgetting curve, which is we actually learn better. Learning curve is a, is a better term for it, but it was originally called the forgetting curve, that we actually learn better over time when we are reintroduced to subject matter at random intervals and in unexpected moments. And if I recall that, that scene correctly, it's been a while, but they're not in a classroom. This is a somewhat out of the blue, right? And he really challenges him. And um, that's what for again as as corporate learning evolved and we said you're going to take a three-hour class and then we'll maybe we'll see you again or maybe not or even again a two-day one we weren't that thoughtful about the fact that that's not really how it works if people are going to commit to some kind of behavior or or really be able to repeat behaviors reliably there's going to have to be a long term of practice and they're going to have to be challenged out of the blue it actually made me think as i was watching it it's so politically incorrect now right but um the pink panther movies with with Peter <laughs> decades ago right but it's so funny to think of that as as a learning tool but uh he had his uh his servant attack him randomly I don't know yeah, 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 <laughs> right? and and the truth is that is absolutely brilliant from a from a cognitive science learning perspective that is probably one of the single best ways that you could possibly learn to to be effective sure it's because who gets a warning when they're going to have to apply their their learning right and mm-hmm. so Daniel-san having to, in the moment, retrieve, right draw on things that he's learned in the classroom is great practice. So, so actually, I, I think um, that's a case where the, the mythology lines up with the science, where what, uh, what Mr. Miyagi is doing is, is even now, would, would hold up pretty well against uh, what we know to be good cognitive practices. Now, let me ask you a question, because uh, I've
0: had this discussion or debate with my wife, right? So I've trained under typically very traditional instructors. So Mm -hmm. they kind of tell you what to do. They don't really tell you much why you're doing it, you know, and you repeat it, you repeat it, you repeat it. And, you know, every once in a while, they'll throw in a little tip or something. But I generally like, I start to understand over time, and it's meaningful to me because I come to my own kind of revelation right yes and sometimes I'll train with other students who maybe are less traditional and you know they're asking constantly why am I doing this what is the point blah blah blah. and sometimes the instructor will humor them and tell them and sometimes he'll just ignore them because it's really not anything that I don't know why he ignores them but that's sure. just not his way of teaching so I guess my question to you was you know Where do you kind of see that balance between sort of sharing something with someone to help advance them so they don't get frustrated versus giving information to someone that's really not going to be retained or be helpful to them because they haven't earned it or learned it themselves?
1: I actually have uh, a couple of uh, a couple of tracks to to the answer to this one, Joe. But I I, I appreciate uh, you asking a question that I that I have some things to say about. <laughs> <laughs> First off, you know one aspect of it is, and it relates to that incentive piece, right? Which is is what people are learning. Does it require compliance or commitment? And ultimately, what differentiates that is—and uh, this is—there's a whole body of literature on change management and change management and learning. Um, but I'll, I'll try to boil it down into a, into a couple of nuggets here. And and one of them is that you know compliance equals what you do when when people are watching or whether the, the when the incentive is right there in front of you right whether it's getting hit by a wrench or getting dinged by a boss or you know having the system shut down on you cuz you did something wrong if the incentive is right in front of you then compliance is good enough and so it's it's you know if you see the cop on the highway you'll slow down if you're speeding right and so Under those circumstances, when all you're looking to elicit is compliance, and sometimes that really is all that you need. Uh, If that's the case, then it actually can be at least more efficient to say, we don't need to get into explanation. If in condition X, you need to exhibit Y. And because the incentive is right there in front of you, that's as far as we need to go. Just build up the muscle memory and do that. And that's all there is to it. So under those conditions, it can be appropriate to just elide the Y part of the equation if you need someone to do something when no one's watching and the incentive is not immediate, then you're going to need commitment and commitment is something that I know that I'm going to undertake this thing, even though there's, there's nothing in it for me right at this moment, but it's the better thing to do over time. And that does most human learning suggests that without a deeper explanation of that why piece uh, that people won't, won't have the commitment. So it's not that the, I, I Generally, the kind of, of teaching and, and work that I do would be more on the commitment side, so I wouldn't be telling people here uh, you know doing it without explaining the why mm-hmm. um, but but it's not always required the other The other condition is if um, if someone is is truly naive to a particular set of behaviors or to a a set of things to get them from a to not even Z, but let's say f there's a, a, a theory called um, situational leadership. Ken Blanchard and and Paul Hersey developed this back in the the 60s. It became better known in in the 70s and 80s. And a lot of, some of the underlying aspects of the theory are, you know, don't hold up very well to the science, but this part does, where the the answering the question why might be irrelevant until a person has built up at least enough muscle memory to do the thing. And then it actually deepens their ability to appreciate and think through how they might do it and how they might do it differently. But it's, it's, I I actually heard a very lively debate about this uh, recently about with artificial intelligence coming, you know, becoming more of a reality. um, And the likelihood that people might not ever have to perform calculations. And there was this lively debate uh, among some colleagues of mine uh, with uh, with a consultancy, about well, calculation is largely drudge work. A computer can do it, so why wouldn't the compute? Why wouldn't you have the computer do it? And then the alternate point of view of well, you but you'll never be able to to have good critical thinking about the outcome of those calculations if you don't know how to do them. And I don't know if that part is actually true or not, but it it kind of it, it's it's part of this debate here is at least on a micro level to say. The first time through uh, a, a process, uh, especially if it's a predictable and repetitive set of tasks, it can be more worthwhile to just have the person do it so that they understand the sequencing of it. And then if, again, the goal is for them to become more proficient uh, and you know, more innovative or improve the process or that there's flexibility in how it can best be performed, then uh, layering in the answer of of why they 're doing it um, becomes a an enabler of them being able to to grow and, and maybe do it even better than they, they were initially taught. Yeah, by and large, I, I, I lean toward the, the why, but again, I'm, I'm teaching things like, uh, like leadership where uh, you're, you're not going to do very well if you tell people uh, this, is, this is what good leadership looks like, but you don't tell them why that's the case.
0: <laughs> Definitely, there's some uh, judgment on the instructor's exactly. part that comes into play. Okay, great, great. Thank you for that. People have different philosophies about bringing out a student's potential, mm-hmm. as this next clip emphatically illustrates.
1: Here we go. Five, six, and. Part 17, the and of four. Got it? Five, five, six, seven. (laughs) Not quite my tempo. It's all good. No worries. Here we go. Five, six, seven. You're rushing. Here we go. Uh, Ready? Okay. Five, six, and. Dragging just a hair. Wait for my cue. Five, six, seven. Rushing. Five, six, and. Dragging.
3: You suppose I just hurled a chair at your head, Neiman? I I don't know. Sure you do. The tempo? Were you rushing
0: or were you dragging?
2: I I don't know.
3: Start counting. Five, six, seven. In four, damn it! Look at me.
1: One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four, One, two, three, four. No. Was I rushing or was I dragging? I
2: don't know. Count again. One two three. One, two, three, one, two, three four. Rushing or
1: dragging? Rushing. So you do know the difference. If you deliberately sabotage my band, I will fuck you like a pig. Now, are you a rusher or are you a dragger or are you going to be on my fucking time? you are going to be on your time.
0: Yikes, Mike. That was intense. Your thoughts?
1: I adore that movie uh and, and, I, and i think i adore it joe exactly for the for the reason that that you're using it here which is that the movie doesn't try to resolve the debate it just introduces the debate and you see it in that scene and you're right that it's about what brings potential out of people and certainly part of the reason i think that it resonated with me uh i mentioned that i'm in my my wife's dance studio my wife is a uh, is a retired ballerina and when I first saw this movie, I, you know, I said, Oh, you should see, I saw it on a plane. I said, you should see it too so that we could talk about it. And she said, I think probably not. And, in, and, and the more I thought about it, she was probably right because what you see here is very representative of the mindset in some of the arts and, and very much so, as I understand it from her in ballet, where mm. there is this, this element of, of pulling it out through, through distress. I don't see it. And that's why she and I probably shouldn't discuss it. But, mm. um, and I would love to to know what happens if someone experiments with doing it differently because because uh, apparently not many have in certain disciplines. But listen, there's always, uh, learning always involves a baseline level of distress, right? Because if you have something to learn, it means there is a gap in your skill or knowledge. You don't learn to do something you already know. So by definition, and, and we don't like not knowing stuff. We don't like to feel as if we're lacking in proficiency or capability. That's a very uncomfortable feeling for humans. So there's always a, some, some element of, of distress involved in learning. We, we can't do it unless there's some discomfort. But most most of the, the science, most of the research that I've seen, that I think anyone's really seen, su- suggests that that really trails off very quickly, that it's a very low level of, of anxiety. That contributes positively to any kind of, of learning uh, or performance gain, and uh, and once you exceed that threshold, it really diminishes because people's problem-solving, decision-making, cognitive capability, learning, all those things become diminished uh, under, under conditions of distress. Despite kind of the myth uh, and, and learning has, uh, is, is one place where a lot of human mythology has sort of taken root and, and needed to be uh, weeded out over the years. But, but that's one of those myths that we excel under conditions of, of, of distress. We, we, we don't. No one's or very few people are better. Um, some of us can just sustain better. And so uh, I you know, I will take my side in the debate and say that, um, you know, it even connects a little to the, to the compliance and and commitment piece. And maybe you could say that because, uh, the, the, the young man, the drummer there is always going to be performing in front of an audience that maybe conditioning him to fear and anxiety is actually a, an important step toward being successful. And I, and I think there's maybe merit to that, but that doesn't, this doesn't seem like the point to be undertaking that particular kind of desensitization. I think, there's room, again, a little bit of discomfort is, is one thing, but from everything that I've seen, uh, you, you, there are better ways to, to motivate good learning because emotion certainly plays in. Um, we, we do know that emotion builds sustained memory, sustained learning. So there is some merit to the idea that an emotional content in a learning experience has value. Um, it's just a question of whether distress uh, related emotion is is the best mechanism, and I would submit that it it probably almost never is
0: yeah the one thing I was wondering about when I was watching the clip is you're kind of taking a very Complementary point of view if you're saying the teacher is doing this for the student's benefit because he definitely wants yeah. his students to be the best versus this is the way this guy was taught it's the only way he knows how to teach and whether it breaks a student or causes a student to transform hell or high water
1: this is the way I'm going to teach it
0: so if you look at it in that light it's not so complimentary in terms of his right. uh, teaching method
1: and 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 the way that he wants them to perform, he may get them to perform precisely in the way that he wants them to perform, but this is a creative endeavor, and the reality is that if what you 're trying to pursue is something more creative, um, then you you may well be doing the exact opposite because the again the incentive for the learner is just to avoid pain and to do exactly what you are told and never deviate, never learn, never try to do it differently or or try to do it better. And so that, and and maybe as you say, the teacher doesn't care. I want it done the way I want it done. If I'm not in the room, I don't really care about it. As long as I'm (laughs) the one watching though, this is exactly what I want to see. And so it might attain that effect. But as you say, that's, that's not to the benefit of the student. That is clearly only to the, to the benefit of the instructor in that case.
0: (laughs) Great. Now, sometimes we show up at the altar of learning and it's not quite what we expect. <laughs> True. I gotta say, I'm incredibly excited to be a part of your
3: firm. I mean, uh, <laughs> the clients you have are absolutely- Fuck to the hard. clients. Your only responsibility is to put meat on the table. You got a girlfriend?
2: I'm, I'm married. I have a, <clears throat> a wife, her name's Teresa, she cuts hair. Thank you.
3: Think about Teresa. Name of the game? Move the money from your client's pocket into your pocket. Right. But if you can make a client's money at the same time, it's advantageous to everyone, correct? No. (laughs) Number one rule of Wall Street. Nobody. Okay, if you're Warren Buffett or if you're Jimmy Buffett, nobody knows. If the stock is gonna go up, down, sideways, or in fucking circles. Least of all stockbrokers, right? It's all a fugazi. You know what a fugazi is? No. Fugazi. It's a fake.
1: Yeah, fugazi,
3: fugazi. It's a wazi. it's a woozy, it's a fairy dust. It doesn't exist. It's never landed. It is no matter. It's not on the elemental chart. It's not fucking real.
2: Right. (laughs) Right.
3: (laughs) Stay with me. Mm -hmm. We don't create shit. We don't build anything. No. So if you've got a client <clears throat> who bought stock at eight mm-hmm. and it now sits at 16 and he's all fucking happy, he wants to cash in liquidate, take his fucking money and run home, you don't let him do that. Okay. Because that would make it real. Right. No. what do you do? You get another brilliant idea, mm-hmm. a special idea, mm-hmm. another situation, another stock to reinvest his earnings and then some. And he will every single time because they're fucking addicted. Mm-hmm and then you just keep doing this again and again and again meanwhile he thinks he's getting shit rich which he is on paper Mm -hmm. but you and me the brokers we're taking home cold hard cash via commission motherfucker right
0: (laughs) that's incredible sir i can't tell you how excited i am you
1: should be what just happened here mike McConaughey is actually deploying one of the most um, important tools in a in uh, advanced in an advanced practitioner's arsenal as an instructor. Uh, it's just that he's doing it badly. <laughs> so, um, so I've, I'm kind of boiled down to to, to five really important things um, that that make learning. Uh, Experiences successful. And, and I've talked about a couple of them, space repetition, retrieval practice. Um, another couple, uh, you know, making problem solving part of the experience, um, social learning. The fifth one is, is the one that McConaughey is using. And, and it, it's actually most, uh, effective or most important in a couple of categories of learning and, and one of them is uh, is sales training, the other is leadership but it's it 's unlearning and what he's what he 's uh, deploying is is unlearning strategy he 's trying to get DiCaprio to unlearn or to reverse his thinking about about certain things, which again is is actually uh, important, uh, especially in, in, in leadership training and especially in sales training, which is essentially what, what this conversation is, right? It's sales training or sales coaching. But he's doing it badly and, and in part because the um, the contingency for unlearning is that the, the the coach, the facilitator, the person who's trying to promote it has to have a very high credibility. And you can see even from the response at the end. Now, eventually, obviously, things go a different direction in uh, in that movie as well. But you can hear the skepticism when uh, when DiCaprio responds at the very end of the scene. The boss did not, um, you know, McConaughey did not did not embody credibility. He's, mm-hmm. um, you know, doing drugs. He's so the the, the unlearning um, in, is is not very successfully executed there. And um, it is, there's been a huge body of literature about about the, the role that unlearning plays, really, in, in adult learning in particular. So that was the, uh, you know, a, a, a case of good instructional design, but very poor facilitator execution. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's really great. What I love about what you're saying here, and I, you see this a lot in companies in a way where some for some positions, especially in the professional services field, they like to hire people straight out of college. And yeah. that's because they haven't learned any habits from another organization. They can teach them exactly what they need. There's less unlearning involved and they can shape and mold their tiny little minds into mm-hmm. what they want. Um, and then another area where I see this is when you're an expert in one field and you're trying to learn something in another field or a complementary field yeah. and your expertise is getting in the way. And I heard, yes. great, I heard a great metaphor about it. Like if you think about a cup, and the cup is full, and the, it's full with your knowledge about the existing way to do things, you can't pour anything else into that cup to learn new things. You have right. to pour out your cup, at least temporarily, and accept the new knowledge to actually have any effective learning take place.
1: 100%. And, and, and I will uh, finally go into an NBA metaphor here, right? But there's no, there's, there's no way that Michael Jordan Didn't have the athleticism required to be a good baseball player, right? That the, I I mean, had he. Pursued that from youth, you have to think that, given all of the assets that that nature provided him, that he would have been at least able to to perform at a at a decent level. And he did not do that. <laughs> um, and it, it it is even just you know the the physical responses, the kind of muscle memory that that he built up in in doing a very different kind of physical discipline, um, were as you said that that bottle was pretty was pretty full. Full and and there was a lot to to pour out and it, and it would have required years of pouring out uh years that he probably didn't have at that point in his life so mm-hmm. um yeah by, uh, certainly, the, the uh, and, and unlearning can be can be very very hard, especially given our again human tendencies toward confirmation bias. Uh, there's so much study of that if we think the right way to get something done, uh, regardless of what evidence we see, we're going to reject most evidence that suggests we're we're incorrect about the best way to do something. So it's 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 tough, and uh, McConaughey does not make his his effort there uh, any any easier for himself.
0: <laughs> Based on a true story. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, yes, yeah.
0: <laughs> it sounds like a movie cliche, but I believe sometimes we can trace a sea change in the course of our life to a single learning moment like this one.
2: I, I didn't do it. I didn't write a poem.
3: Mr. Anderson thinks that everything inside of him is worthless and embarrassing. Isn't that right, Todd? Todd? that's your worst fear. I think you're wrong. I think you have something inside of you that is worth a great
2: deal. I sound my arm Eric yawp the rooftops of the world. W, W. Uncle
3: Walt, again. Now, for those of you who don't know, a yawp is a loud cry or yell. Now, Todd, I would like you to give us a demonstration of a barbaric yawp. Come on, you can't yawp sitting down. Let's go, come on, up. Gotta get in yawping stance. Uh,
2: a yawp. No, not just a yawp, a barbaric yawp. Mm-hmm. Uh, yawp.
3: Come on, louder. Yo. Oh, that's a mouse. Come on. Louder. Yo. Oh, good God, boy. Yell like that. There it is. You see? You have a barbarian in you after all. Now, you don't get away that easy. Fix Uncle Walt up there. What does he remind you of? Don't think. Answer. Go on. A, 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 a madman. What kind of madman? Well, think about it. Just answer again. A, a crazy man. Oh, no, you can do better than that. Free up your mind. Use your imagination. Say the first thing that pops into your head, even if it's sort of gibberish. Go oh, uh, oh. a, a sweaty-toothed madman. Good God, boy. There's a poet in you after
0: all.
2: There. Close your eyes. Ooh, sure. Close your Close him. Now, describe what you see.
0: Uh, I, I close my eyes. Yes? Uh, and this image floats
3: beside me. sweaty toothed madman. The, the sweaty toothed madman with a stare that pounds my brain. Oh, that's excellent. Now, give him action. Make him do something. His hands reach out and choke me. Excellent. Wonderful, wonderful.
2: And all the time he's mumbling. What's he mumbling? Uh, mumbling truth. Yeah, yeah. Truth like, like a blanket that always leaves your feet cold. <laughs> Forget them, forget them. Stay with the blanket. Tell me about that blanket. You, 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 you push it, stretch it, it'll never be enough. You kick at it, beat it, it'll never cover any of us. And from the moment we enter crying to, to the moment we leave dying, it'll just cover your face as you wail and cry and scream. Don't you forget this.
1: What's your reaction, Mike? It's so uh, beautiful and so moving, and I feel almost criminal for doing a clinical dissection of it. But uh, <laughs> I was trained as a counseling psychologist, so I'm going to do it anyway. And and I, it's what uh, Robin Williams is doing there is he's it's funny you could you could say well he's not really teaching him. Um, he's pulling creativity out of him and that's not really teaching. And I, but I disagree because I I think as, as you'd uh, agree, Joe, he's, he's teaching him a process, even though, again, that's a very clinical way to describe it, but he was teaching him a process for accessing the tools to be able to be creative. Right. And and Mm -hmm. think in that way, and what's cool about that is that it's a process that will stick with him. The, the, we talked a little about emotion and its role in learning and retention. And, you know, the more powerful the emotion is, the more it influences retention. And Mm. so it can be the case that to me, that's part of the, the the beauty of that from my professional perspective is that that process is now encoded. He, he, because it was so emotional and so powerful that he's going to be able to replicate that uh, even without necessarily years of, of practice, maybe. And, you know, the, dark side of that is, is, is that's the function of human memory. So again, anxiety, traumatic, we know that, that, you know, it's, it's, here's the the, the downside is that things like PTSD, you know, it only takes one very, very powerful, dramatic, emotional experience to encode something into your, into your memory forever. That's the downside of our human cognition. But the good news is that it's the same, you know, the flip side of that coin is, is the process of if something is really moving and really powerful and the goal is to learn in that moment, that's a, that's an amazing trigger for that process. And so it's a, it's a great, it's a, it's a, you know, just a a human, Lovely human moment, and also just a, a really compelling one for someone who, who likes to see that combined with some, some good learning practice.
0: <laughs> well, one thing I find so fascinating that you've touched on a couple times during our conversation is the emotional element and the role of emotion in learning. Yeah. I think a lot of people think of learning as very rational. And do you identify all the right steps? And then we'll just outsource this bad boy, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's a very kind of typical kind of response. And I don't think there's a general recognition of how powerful the role is in emotion to, to learn and how you were saying, I love how you use the word encoding, right? And, yeah. and that that made me think that a lot of the things that we learn that maybe are not so good for us. Bad behaviors are encoded because something happened that really hurt us or made us scared. And then we came up with a behavior to deflect or avoid that pain in the future. And now we can't break it. It's encoded into us as a self-protective mechanism, even though in a, in a greater sense, it's actually hurting us down the line.
1: It's, it's the legacy of how we, we evolved, right? Where if something terrified us back in the you know pre-civilization days, remembering that fear, you know, somehow you managed to survive. Fight or flight mm-hmm. kicked and you managed to survive. And the encoding of, of that behavior, right? That's, that was exactly the, 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 I don't want to say the point because that uh, suggests that there was you know, a, a an intended outcome. Nature doesn't work that way, right? But but the reason it was successful is because it gave you a better chance to survive if just one incredibly terrifying experience was enough for you to recognize the signs of it happening again and get away before the saber toothed tiger uh, ended up, you know, coming into the cave, right? And so it was an effective mechanism and it does again confer some benefits of of being able to learn through motion, but also learning negative things. So it's it's, you know, you don't want to Put a, a sign of value to it it 's just that we know we know emotion carries that weight, and I think you're right there, there are actually I would say there have been traditionally sort of um, two schools, um, one wherein you know trainers and in particular you know some of us and i 'll cop to this myself, I did theater in school uh, were drawn to this field because it 's a little performative, and those of us from that side of the fence tended to be about oh let 's make learning fun and what 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 i 've now seen is that you know fun is a red herring. It's not fun. Fun is, is a form of emotion, but it's not always the best one. It's what's the best way to elicit that, that learning from people. Uh, And then you did have the more, you know, the more clinical learning is just about, about rationality and logic. Um, And, and it may be, but it also means that the forgetting curve is is steeper because there just isn't that, uh, that deeper process of memory through, through emotion that no matter what that is, that is part of the human condition and part of human cognition. So, Mike, I'm, I have a question for you. I'm going to play it being a
0: learning professional for a moment here because that's not my day job. But what do you think about, just as a theoretical concept, trainers and educators somehow figuring out a way to harness that kind of primal mechanism and the encoding that you were talking about to really maximize learning i'm not talking about attacking people or you know throwing right, frames right, right. at them but 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 you you get what i'm saying right because that learning is so powerful when it's under those conditions versus please turn to page 45 yes. underline the second bullet i mean there are no stakes there there's no emotion there's that's no right. excitement there's nothing there have you have has that discussion been going on or is that something that's sort of come across your mind at some point
1: uh, in many ways, actually, that's, that's uh, a, an emerging hot topic for us because uh, to a certain extent that's the promise of virtual reality. And oh. what we see is, is that, as you say, you can only, do, you know, what can you do through a, a role play? And I'm, and I've, and I'm a, uh, a hardwired skeptic and on the record uh, in my skepticism of role plays. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's because there's too much artificiality around it. But um the promise of part of the promise of virtual reality uh, anyway for for learning and especially for learning that has interpersonal components, so leadership sales uh, just communication skills um, negotiation all these things where you can actually be the recipient of whatever it is that you're trying to teach where you can actually feel like you are receiving the communication that you're trying to instruct people on and build in some more emotional component to that and not that uh, again as you said it's going to be someone you know jump scaring you, you know, from behind <laughs> the conversation you're having um but at least prompting you to to feel if you're getting bad customer service like putting you deep enough into it that you might really be getting irritated with it with the person yeah you know, simulated or not who's doing that so that that's 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 where I think we see some, some really interesting pathways to, um, to that becoming uh, a more powerful set of, of, of learning tactics, yeah. Great.
0: Well, Mike, it's been a real treat to talk to you and hear your expertise on learning. What updates or things you're working on would you like to share with our audience, and how can people get in touch with you to learn more?
1: Uh, sure. I am um, easily found on LinkedIn. Um, well, Michael Kennedy is not the most uncommon name in the world. so. Uh, <laughs> You might just have to throw in NBA, but, uh, but that, should, that should get you to me pretty easily. Um, things that I'm uh, working on right now, I have, um, I'm hoping uh, a, a, a writing partner, a uh, research professor from the University of Georgia and I are, are putting together a white paper on, uh, on L&D and how it can really uh, influence culture change. And so uh, I'm not sure where we're going to uh, to have that uh, published, but I'm pretty uh, you know, hopeful that we'll, we'll have that out in the world soon enough. Uh, hoping to do another, a few more conference bookings. That'll be something you can see on on the LinkedIn page as well.
0: Look forward to it. Thank you, Mike, for sharing your insights on why it works.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Joe.
0: Like a well-executed pick and roll, a great book to go with this podcast is How We Learn, The Surprising Truth About When, Where, and Why It Happens by Benedict Carey. It's a favorite of mine, and I was pleasantly surprised to learn a favorite of Mike's. To receive a free copy of How We Learn or another audiobook of your choice, just go to audibletrial.com whyitworks. Again, that's audibletrial.com whyitworks for your free audiobook. To support our show, please leave a rating or comment or become a sponsor of Why It Works by going to www.patreon.com whyitworks. That's ww.p.com slash why it Thank you. And remember, the enemy of learning is boring. Thanks for listening to this episode of Why It Works. For more information about Joe Kwanjo coaching, as well as access to my articles, videos, and podcasts visit joekwanzhou.com and stay tuned for our next why it works adventure